Hi uh, and uh, good afternoon. My name is Andy Koheller uh, and welcome to Reboot 2030, the Democracy Schools YouTube channel. My guest today is Susanna Cafaro. Susanna is a professor of European Union law at the University of Salento in, in Italy. She was awarded the Chamonix Chair from the European Union in 2019 for her outstanding contribution to research uh, and her general commitment and uh, campaigning and work for the European Union. She is one of the top European law professors in Europe. Sana has authored and edited numerous books and has written more than 50 scholarly articles and book chapters. She's joined the European uh, uh, Federalist, Young European Federalists um, at a very young age, as a teenager, and has been an activist ever since. Um, her current research explores uh, <laughs> to what extent the European Union might serve as a model for other international organizations uh, wishing to democratize the governance arrangements. So let me see, I think Susanna is already waiting for me. Uh, let her in, okay. Hi Susanna, can you hear me? Hi Nico, yes, I can hear you. Susanna, you have to turn on your camera. Ah, okay. there you go. <laughs> Good to Everything see you. Everything works. How, how are you doing? Fine, thank you. <laughs> very, thank you very much for joining me for this uh, for this uh, uh, interview today. Uh, Susanna, let's just sort of, let me say a few words about the format. Um, this is very much like a conversation. So the, the, the idea is, is that we explore both your own motivations for being a European activist, and of course, also what brought you into academia and then to your current research. So uh, let me just ask you, uh, you describe yourself as a sort of, as a federalist and as a European activist. What, what exactly, what do you mean by that? What does what a European activist do? Or what does a European federalist do? Well, I started as a European federalist when I was a teenager. So my first impact with the European institutions was an, as an activist when I was only 17. And uh, I really believed that European integration was uh, uh, the, the, the big goal for our generation in order to overcome uh, the risk of wars, uh, the competition among states, uh, the hatred that were, was uh, quite a normal thing in, the, in our grandparents' uh, generation. So. It, was back in the 80s, so it was the big enthusiasm also of overcoming the end of the bipolarized world. <laughs> I remember, I, I remember I've sort of grown up in the 1980s myself, and I remember only too well hitchhiking around Italy and being confronted by old men who had fought in the resistance against Hitler. And it was for me at the time, it was a, it was a really quite a, a, an intense experience because of course, you know, I grew up in, in, in sort of peacetime West Germany, and this was for the first time that I had direct contact, if you like, uh, with, with my past, with Germany's past, um, and, and with history as such. And of course, that kind of contact really brings it home in a way why the European Union matters so much. In, in fact, I think in some ways, the sort of the younger generations have probably don't have that direct contact anymore and it's easy to forget why we started this this project in the first place um so 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 how did you i mean europe tends to be this monolithic structure 
So getting involved with the European Union kind of on the face of it sounds easy, but how in practice, what did this mean? How did this happen? How did you actually kind of get involved with the European Union and maybe also the Commission or the Parliament and, and its different uh, organs? I think I explored the many different uh, facets of the European Union because uh, first of all, uh, I, after these early years as young federalist, uh, I decided to, to, to take a, a law curriculum at university because I, as a federalist, I really believed in this idea that law and institutions could be bridges among people, could be uh, the real, the Kantian piece, the idea that institutions can be a place where people discuss instead of fighting. And so I, I really was very much motivated in this. And this brought me up after to, to apply for a PhD in European Union law. And then I had quite a conventional uh, academic path uh, from researcher to associate to, to full professor. But in, in the meantime, I also explored the institutions by inside as uh, I had uh, several uh, experiences uh, uh, as, a, as a PhD student, as a trainee in the legal service of the Council of the Union and uh, in the newly established uh, Legal Council of the European Central Bank. And I was very often in the European Parliament because I had many friends who were assistants there. And so I, I, I had this, uh, this beautiful experience uh, in the 90s when the parliament was still more, much more accessible before, before September 11, uh, where the, the, the control was much lower on the people uh, entering and exiting mm -hmm. the parliament. So it was easier to, to get into the committees and interview MPs uh, and discuss with them the, 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 the European problems. So for me, as a, as a young scholar was, uh, well, almost a dream, a dream place because uh, even if uh, the, you know, the, the narrative about the union is that it's, it's, uh, it's a repulsive <laughs> uh, institution, I, I can say from my personal experience that it's much more difficult to get it the inside with, a, with a, any, any Italian ministry than the European mm -hmm. institutions actually. So. It, it, it's interesting um, because when I look at your journey, it sort of starts as sort of as, as a very much as a personal sort of journey, something that has probably to do with your own interests, your own concerns, and all this. But you move from the, you made your your activism, you made it your profession. So you, you your your academic studies came later. Um, when you began to sort of look at the European Union as an object of study. Um, how did your relation or you, the way you relate to Europe change? Was it still the same European Union or did you begin to see more or a different kind of European Union as you understood more, say, for example, the legal side of it all? I think uh, I understood that there are many different perspectives on, you, on the, the European Union. And I, I completely understand why people can have different perceptions about it because uh, you can look at it from, from many different angles as a professional, as a citizen, as a scholar, as a, as a student. And so I, I really think that uh, we can experience the union in many different ways. But what I still um, have a hard time understanding is why we often confuse people, often confuse the, 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 the box with the content. 
And so when we don't like, uh, when people don't like the, the policies of the union, they are against the union, not against the policies. Why, when we don't like the, the policies of Italy or Germany, we are not against Italy or Germany. We are That's against right. that government, that poli those policies, and we want to change the government and the policies. And these are the same phenomena that we observe in the union, that the commission changes, that the European elections may have an impact on the majority and so on the policies. And all this has an impact on, uh, on the outcomes. So we had an austerity period. Now we are more in a solidarity period, but these are different policies of the main, the same institutions. So why being uh, uh, in favor or against the box when the point is we like or we don't like the policies? So, so let's let's kind of move on to the box, if you like, uh, because okay. I think this is really um, where where both some of the excitement lies, but also some of the challenges, of course, um, because of course that container, in a way, although it is a box, you're absolutely right. It also somehow determines the shape of what can fit into it. So, so it's it is it, it is a container, but it is also giving shape to the politics that that are actually possible or feasible within it. Um, now, why, 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 what is so special? In what way is European politics different from, say, national politics? What's the difference, the big difference? Thank you for your question, Nico. I totally agree. The European Union is absolutely special. And maybe this is one of the difficult things to explain what is special about it and, and what it makes it different from both states and other international organizations because uh, it is a, a sort of halfway and hybrid between the two. So it, it, it was at the beginning some, uh, an international organization equipped with some uh, particular features, uh, which I call, uh, and many, many scholars call supranational, which means uh, uh, some elements in the institutions which make the individuals relevant and the legitimacy on the structure relevant because uh, uh, it's not just a collaboration among states, so it's not just international among nations, but it's also over nations, supranational, means that it can uh, take, uh, adopt rules for nations and for individuals, and both nations and individuals can uh, both apply these rules, but also challenge and cope these rules, for instance. So there is a double stance for individuals and for uh, national states. So it's a double legitimacy. There is also a declaration in, in Article 10 of the Treaty of the Union of this double legitimacy, both from states and from individuals. And uh, this is what makes the union quite peculiar because all the other international organizations have only the state's legitimacy, while the union has also this individual's legitimacy in the European Parliament through direct elections. The uh, point is that it's still an hybrid because, uh, as uh, we all know, this formula, which is the, the original and peculiar formula of the Union, some, somebody called this the Jean Monnet formula because it was really created uh, with the European Colonial Community by this original idea by, by Jean Monnet in, in the 50, uh, do not apply to all the politics. And so there are still significant exceptions where it is still international. And uh, the main one being the foreign and security policy, for instance. But there is uh, quite uh, uh, some of this also in the economic governance of the union. Macroeconomic policies are also quite international. 
and uh, there are also significant exceptions to the competence of the union in migration policy which is another big issue uh, nowadays so we have a number of gaps that need to be filled because uh, uh, what is uh, um, typical of an international organization so which is uh, typical in this creation of the union since the very beginning is that it has competence only on the uh, in the areas which are attributed to its competence by the treaties which means that every decision and every regulation has to be grounded on the competencies already attributed to the union what happens is that the reality moves, moves much uh, faster than the adoption of new treaties and so we have always new issues that are not foreseen and so not, no legal basis can allow the union to intervene with proper uh, supranational policies. There, there's an interesting um, psychological kind of block as well, isn't there? Uh, when you, you know, the, I mean, some people sort of say, oh, why don't we kind of go for a sort of a United States of Europe, uh, you know, sort of a fully integrated federalist kind of uh, 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 arrangement. And of course, a lot of other people will say, oh, no, 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 we, we, you know, we need to maintain national sovereignty. And there is this tug of war going on, isn't there, between uh, the, the kind of the, the fear that some or many nations have uh, about losing control over their own destiny on the one hand, or maybe paying over the odds. I mean, I think Germany is kind of concerned about paying over the odds. Uh, but, you know, so, but, you know, that's, that's one aspect. But the other one is, of course, you know, integration is in many respects really important. We now see it again with the war uh, in, in Ukraine, um, you know, the, the shortcomings of a kind of, for instance, they do not have a sort of an integrated defense policy or foreign policy. That would really help right now, wouldn't it? Um, with the pandemic, you know, we, we have seen that, you know, we should go, we could go, if we would have gone much further with our sort of like a European health policy, public health policy, again, we probably would have kind of prevented many more deaths. And so there's other areas where, you know, where, where these shortcomings come up. But so these, but these are all in a way questions of competence, aren't they? Like, you know, who should, you know, who should be in charge of what? But there's another sort of procedural issue, which kind of in a way gets in the way of coming to terms with these issues. And that's this whole issue about unanimity, so that basically all have to agree. And if one person doesn't, then then there is a kind of a big problem. There's this problem of blocking sort of uh, sort of uh, democratic decision making. Um, where do you see this? Where do you see this kind of tug of war go? I mean, how do you see the European Union evolve over the next five years? And is this going to? Do you see this as a kind of a process of sort of? an enlightened democratic development or you see it as a sort of a just a kind of almost a reactionary kind of process reacting to external to external crises and 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 and, and events uh, you're right there uh, this dialectic between these two different uh, uh, aspects of the union so the willing to integrate and to go towards this federation and the, the the will to to remain as independent as we can has always been there. And so I, I can say that states join the union maybe for different reasons. And uh, the other problem is maybe that governments change. And so the same state can have a different attitude in a period or in another. And unfortunately with 27 states, we are always under election here or there. So, and this could be solved with some synchronized, for instance, elections that could help having at least one period of shared vision about our future. But I totally agree about the, the, the shortcomings of the unanimity. 
And so when I told you that there are some fields which are uh, very much international, these are the fields of unanimity. And so foreign insecurity policy, uh, taxation, harmonization of taxation, and uh, this kind of uh, um, uh, decisional procedure make it very difficult to have whatever decision. Because uh, even if the, the standard decisional process is uh, trying to agree, and uh, if you look at the, the, uh, the practice of the council, you see that 90% of the decision or even more are taken by all agreeing on the text. Point is that when there is a, a unanimity written in the treaties, we don't even, you know, we don't get there because everybody knows that he can block all the others. And so uh, this doesn't uh, help reaching an agreement whatsoever. So the unanimity is absolutely something we should delete from the treaties, even from the reform process of reforming the treaties, because it's getting more and more uh, impossible to reform the treaties as uh, this uh, was uh, the rule when the, the member states were less than half than they are now. And so uh, every new enlargement has, uh, has uh, uh, becomes uh, a new challenge for reforming the treaties and for reaching an agreement on these policies. So I think this is after the conference on the future of Europe, we need to, to revise the treaty and we need to delete unanimity from the treaties. We can even make it, you know, 80% majority, doesn't matter. Point is, nobody should have the right to block all the others because this make it impossible to reach an agreement. Now, one of one, I think one of the big problems, of course, of the European Union is that it has a, a very singular, if you like, founding narrative. And this is a narrative of economic interdependency. Um, and so Europe has gone a very, very long way you know, on that, in, 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 in that particular domain, in, in terms of, so it's got the single market, the customs union, it's got, you know, all kinds of mechanism harmonizations, tariff regimes, and it is actually quite good at managing the kind of the European economy. And it's actually much better than many people thought at managing European money to the Euro. I mean, so, so there's a kind of a whole cluster of economic issues that Europe does really well. Um, but of course, what we have seen in recent years or decades, you can almost say, is that other kind of domains have come up that in a way should become part of that narrative. Uh, so, of course, uh, you know, what, what one domain would probably be sort of tax harmonization for, you know, uh, you know, one or, or tax more generally speaking, one one domain probably would be there's a whole debate about so sovereign debt and about the euro bonds and all of that, you know, uh, there's a whole thing about foreign policy, a whole thing. And so there's how and, and once we kind of broaden it out in these kind of peripheral areas, uh, there's far less agreement. Um, so the Europe to this day, to me, still seems to be very much an economic union that is kind of trying to move beyond that uh, and has good reasons to do so. And the will is also there, but the way isn't quite clear how, 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 how to get there. I mean, for instance, defense. I mean, you know, the, the, the defense budgets, the kind of the uh, aggregate of defense budgets across Europe is, is a multitude of, say, for example, the Russian defense budget. But our military is because there's so much overlap and so much inefficiency in, in the whole defense spending across Europe that we're not actually getting the kind of the benefits, the kind of economies of scale and the efficiencies that we'd really want to see probably in, 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 in the world as we move forward. Um, so how do we broaden out from what essentially still is very much an economic union 
uh, to something that becomes a holistic political entity with shared values and all the rest. So I agree with you. There is a narrative, and this narrative is about economics, but this is mostly what is perceived. I, um, my, my personal uh, perception from maybe from my, my knowledge also of European history, the history of European integration, is that economics uh, has been uh, a sort of troy horse. I mean, uh, uh, already in the Jean Monnet view, the idea was uh, let's reach peace through economic collaboration. Let's make the former enemies so intertwined in their economic integration that where they will lose any interest in making war against each other. And I think in a sense, this big goal of peace through economics worked because as you told at the beginning, traveling through Europe, now you don't sense any kind of uh, uh, former enemies perception because we are really pacified inside. And uh, I see that in, in many other areas of the world, even with treaties and collaboration, there is not such a sense of pacification of former enemies became, become, becoming friends and collaborators in, in a sense that we had in Europe. So I think this strategy worked. But I think there was also another strategy side in this one and less clear to the non-experts, which is uh, let's unify all we can without moving too much budget to the central uh, uh, management of the, of the union, so to the commission. So uh, the union has a very small budget compared to member states. Uh, it's, it's actually, a, it was before the next generation EU, it was about 1% of European GDP. With the next generation, it's going to double, which is enormous, but still 2% is not the 20% that we have in the federal states at central level. And so how could we do that? We, uh, Europeans could do that uh, having uh, regulatory policies. So common market freedoms, uh, uh, regulations about, uh, about uh, uh, standards for companies, for people moving, for uh, any kind of uh, regulation, not asking, not requiring money. And so uh, these, uh, these little, little uh, riches that the union had, and still has is all invested in the in the uh, goal of uh, um, approximation of regions which are uh, less developed or less uh, less less rich than others. So uh, these are the, the the structural funds of the union. But this is really a little money compared to the money moved by member states. This was possible because all the policies involving welfare remain national. And all the policies involving taxation remain, remain national. So states raise money and spend money. And what the union has is really pocket money compared to what the states have. Yeah. And so even if there is this, uh, this narrative about the, this economic giant, it's strange because it's an economic giant with a tiny budget. So uh, what, what we had in common are the views about economics, not, not the economy itself. And so this makes more difficult to have policies of solidarity towards citizens or uh, um, minimum, minimum uh, uh, salaries or uh, harmonized taxes. I agree with you, we should go there because citizens being more and more integrated in, in this uh, common area and being more and more used to travel and to work and to study in other countries, 
see the differences and perceive these inequalities as failures of the union. But these are choices by member states to keep their own budget for many reasons. You mentioned a very good one. So the fear of Germany or other rich countries not to, to pay for the less uh, economic wise, uh, let's yeah. say the, the less controlled, the less, less uh, trustworthy uh, Mediterranean ones. But uh, uh, whatever the reasons, the point is that states, all the states try to keep their own budget. And so even the big jump that we had uh, with the Maastricht Treaty and the, the idea to create a, a single central bank was done moving uh, at the central level what was already uh, an autonomous policy at national level because monetary policy was already independent at national level. So it could be moved decentralized without touching the competencies of parliaments about budgets. Um. I mean, there are, and I think this is also, this is also always a danger in any sort of discussion around Europe. It's such a large topic, uh, and there's so many crucial details in this that it's quite, and, and in some ways we're kind of doing this as well. We're zooming in because we have a sort of a sense of where we see some of the problems and we go straight for those. Um, but if you were to sort of sort of pull out and sort of look at the big picture, um, what one of your basic tenets in in your research, and we come to that in a minute, uh, is that there is you know that there's something in the European model um, that could be scaled or that could be, if you like, applied to other uh, uh, international organisations. Uh, clearly, um, this must suggest that there is something about the European model that already works really well. I, I was referring earlier to the kind of the kind of economic narrative that I was saying. There's there's that whole complex of things we're doing really well. And if you move out from that, we're kind of less in agreement what, what we really want as Europeans. But if you, from your perspective, were to kind of try to capture what that core, that functioning core, that kind of potential blueprint for other organizations, what that looks like and why that is so precious and so, so worthwhile. Maybe if you could just try to kind of explain that or kind of try to describe that to me. Thank you, Nico. This is a topic which really passionates me because I really think that Europe is quite a, a successful lab for the world. Um, let me explain. A successful doesn't mean a finished, a finished project. It's an unfinished project because there are so many things that could be improved here and there in the structure. And we mentioned already the unanimity, which we should read of. But it's, uh, it's at the same time, the most advanced way in which uh, states cooperate and citizens cooperate among and across borders. And so uh, not only it has already proved to be quite a model because we have other regional cooperations which are in some way uh, the European model or pieces of European model trans transplanted in other continents. I think of the African Union, of the Mercosur, of the ASEAN, or uh, for instance, I don't know if you if you know there is already a project of the Gulf countries to have their own currency union, and also the African Union is planning a currency union. Of course, they are studying the European one. So we are a sort of forerunners for regional integrations, and this is already interesting. But what is interesting is also that some European solutions. Uh, involving citizens and citizens' participation, I think it could also be applied in global organizations. 
uh, but uh, not the, the, the institutional structure as it is, more single um, successful experiments. For instance, uh, uh, there is already a campaign for having a, a UN parliament. There is already a campaign for, a, for having a UN citizens initiative like the one we have in Europe. So you see, there are already some uh, activists taking inspiration from the union. And I think that uh, if we look at some trends in the law of international organization, we can also identify some other uh, successful uh, experiments. For instance, uh, since the, the 90s, we have more and more uh, uh, checks and balances in the, in the international organizations. So uh, bodies in charge of uh, uh, controlling the finances, controlling uh, the other bodies, and so uh, the functioning of the organization. We see this in the, in the IMF, in the World Bank, in, in several other organizations of the UN family. Since the 2000s, we have also some mechanism of claiming for individuals. So um, ombudsman, for instance, we have an ombudsman in charge for the listing terrorists at, uh, uh, listed as terrorists by the, the UN Security Council. And this was inspired by uh, the CADI uh, cases in front of the European Court of Justice. So I think that the European experience is teaching other organizations that they could involve in some way individuals. Uh, another interesting experiment is involving civil society. We have always had the consultations of civil society in the European Union. The European Commission uh, puts forward any, any, any proposal, even beyond the proposal, any working document before making a proposal for a regulation on a website and collect uh, uh, the opinions of, uh, of uh, uh, civil society actors, be them uh, NGOs or lobbies or uh, other actors from, from, uh, from the society. And uh, this is happening increasingly also in other international organizations. It happened, for instance, a sort of consultation before the adoption of the UNGSC, the UN uh, Global Development uh, Sustainable Development Goals, for instance. And uh, we have, uh, since, the, since the early 2000, in many different organizations, some kind of dialogue with civil society periodically. Uh, in, uh, once again, in IMF, in World Bank, in uh, UNDP, uh, so this is uh, uh, all tanks, uh, little, little elements which add to the picture of the typical international organization, which is among states, uh, what I think is the basic ingredient of democracy, which is individuals. <laughs> individuals, I mean, both as individuals and as uh, uh, groups of individuals. There, there's, 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 there's um, when I think about participation, I always think about a sort of a supplier side of participation. This is organizations or, you know, local authorities, local governments or national governments, or indeed the European Union, um, deciding that they want to involve citizens. It's the supply side. And of course, they have an interest in doing that for a whole host of reasons. And then there's the demand side, which is basically citizen demanding to be included in it. And the two, the supply side of participation and the demand side of participation, in my experience, they don't meet. So the kind of expectations that citizens have in terms of what they want to get out of a participatory exercise is often in stark contrast or, you know, almost often also 
diametrically opposed to what, what the supply side wants. Um, but this doesn't mean that you can't bring it together. It just means that it always is a challenge to kind of to bring those two together that the expectations of the citizens and the expectations of the commissioner uh, of the participation exercise are somehow aligned. On the, on the supply side, um, in Europe, for example, I find it quite interesting in the way it forces the institutions to think much more about how, you know, what citizens might actually be interested in and how they might actually be able to connect directly with citizens. I think that in itself, in terms of beginning to change the mindset from a, an organization that is essentially multinational to an organization that becomes much more an organization of regions and of citizens. Um, that is a really, really interesting, of course, participatory exercises are a great learning resource for institutions on the supply side. Um, and, um, but of course, what that also means is, is that there has to be a direct, if you like, a sort of a legal or sort of institutional structural link between the individual and the institutions. And of course, in Europe, that is given through the European Parliament and through European elections and so forth. With other institutions, like say the World Bank uh, or, 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 or even the, the UN, um, that link isn't there. So um, for citizens, to, you know, it, it's it's a very, very different ball game to participate. I can sit, still see the, this demand, sorry, the supply side benefits of a UN or a World Bank uh, or a World Trade Organization or World Health Organization having a participatory approach, because of course you do need to know what the, uh, you know, the, the kind of the, the person at the end of that food chain really needs or wants. But from the citizen's point of view, those, chains can become very, very long and the kind of linkage is quite weak. How do you see, I mean, it's difficult enough within the European Union, but you know, how do you see that these structural constraints can be overcome with organizations that are essentially country to country or nation to nation organizations, multinational organizations, as opposed to transnational organizations? Um, how do you see that that can be overcome? And do you see any structural reforms taking place or you know, attempts at structural reforms uh, emerging that would indicate that there is some movement there. So uh, it's it's a it's a big deal. I mean, I, I, it's very complex because I think every organization is a story of its own, and uh, uh, I think that also in this uh, the union is is a model more in, in the in the process sense than in the outcome. Because uh, what is interesting is that there is this ongoing reform and ongoing experimentation. For instance, the Conference on the Future of Europe is a double experimentation, collecting both a, a flow of, of uh, citizens' uh, inputs on a platform and convening also these uh, randomly selected citizens in, uh, in uh, assemblies. And so this, this was a double experimentation in participatory democracy and deliberative democracy. And uh, I think uh, once the, 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 the tool is there, maybe it will be used, it's very possible it will be used again because we just tested a new instrument. And this kind of instrument could be also experimented in other organizations. Of course, it's difficult to imagine a global election, uh, even more so as a, a quite a part, a significant part of the world as not even national elections or regular national elections. So this is really challenging. And uh, I think that uh, uh, there is much space for creativity there. We have to invent new models fitting the global scale. 
What I think is that we need more and more to think in terms both of multi-level governance and democracy. So citizens deciding to participate more at local level and citizens deciding to participate more at national or global level. And uh, uh, also, I think that we need to go towards multi-stakeholder uh, models where we can have at the same table political leaders, regional leaders, local leaders, communities, but also big companies having an impact on this specific area or uh, uh, countries which are affected by specific problems together with the companies in order to, to, to get some, some kind of outcome. So I think we are in a, in a stage where we are trying to destructure democracy in order to rebuild it fitting for the global scale because we have more and more global issues, but we have also still many local issues. And so uh, we can only imagine a future democracy as multi-level and also as multi-stakeholder. There, there is, so, there's, it, when it comes to participatory democracy, in, in my way of thinking, there's kind of fundamentally two very different kinds of, if you like, participation intents. There is participation, which is very much around, if you like, service improvement. Um, so it's about making an existing structure, improving on the status quo. So for that, you don't need to have any legislative changes. You don't, you know, in fact, the legitimacy is already there. This is just a question of improvement. Uh, um, and that's that's how, and this is a good, very legitimate thing to do. I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's a hospital reaching out to patients, whether it's a local government reaching out to local citizens, or whether indeed whether it's the UN or the kind of the EU reaching out to its citizens uh, and to the civil society at large. This is entirely legitimate. This is all about within the umbrella of improvement. So existing things are done better. There's another area which ha basically has about change, about structural change, about the, the things that, you know, doing something new. And the cynics would call the one thing rearranging the dictures and the titanic that's the service improvement you already feel it's going in the wrong direction but you're still improving it and the other thing is kind of trying to change the direction of that super tanker the second one is of course much much more difficult to do within existing structures because there you need almost need a, a democratic mandate don't you you can't just change the status quo without a, a democratic mandate otherwise that would be a bit like a revolution or something you know it wouldn't it would fall outside the kind of the, the, the remit of participation um, but of course, at the national level, you have that. You have referenda, for example, um, and they can change the status quo fundamentally um, by putting things to a one person, one vote kind of uh, scenario. You know, at the global level, that isn't possible. So, my question here is I'll be talking generally always about service improvement at this point in the widest sense, improving existing structures, or do you see any scope also for moving beyond that into the world of really kind of reimagining our institutions? I would love to see more substantial reforms of the existing institutions. I, but I, I find it easier than imagining completely new ones. So repealing the old ones with different ones. I think it's much easier to add elements to what is already existing and may, maybe uh, making less relevant what are now the main decision-making centers. So, for instance, uh, in Europe, the European Parliament gained a role along the time and became more and more relevant, but this wasn't uh, done by killing the council, it was just done by uh, enhancing the political status of the Parliament. And uh, uh, the same could happen in, in, other, in other organizations. So for instance, I would love to see the 
the, the assembly of the UN becoming more and more prominent compared to the Security Council, but still it is international as people sitting there is representing their nations. And why this is not progressive, let's say. It's not progressive because their mandate is national. They are committed to defend national interests. One, while if you are elected to an, a supranational body, you know you're elected for taking care of the global interests or the regional interests. So you have a different commitment. And this makes a huge difference in my opinion. So for instance, the European Parliament, I think there is still a big upgrade to be done. We need a, a legislative procedure for the whole Europe. We have still national legislative uh, laws. And once we have one single legislative procedure, we then will have European parties instead of national parties becoming then groups of, of, of uh, uh, political families inside the European Parliament. And then we will have really maybe some more direct participation of citizens because the European parties will be a visual projection of what citizens are voting and seeing in the European Parliament. So I think this, this for instance, can be done without even, even uh, changing the treaties. So the, the European Parliament has already the mandate to do a single legislative procedure. I mean, I think at the European, this is exactly my point from earlier, I think at the European level, we are at a point where participation can really tip the balance in the right direction, because, the, because we do have the basic democratic infrastructures to, to, yeah. to make this work. I mean, I mean, if, even if you take the principle of unanimity, and I can think of another one, the precautionary principle, and, and, and you know, which is another one of those where a lot of people think that should go, because it takes forever for, for certain drugs to be licensed in the European market, and you know, much longer than it does in the US. And there's a whole thing about whether the precautionary principle should stay or go. Again, you know, like if, if you have a, a really deadly disease and you'd like to get the drug early, then you probably want it to go and, and so on and so forth. But these are real campaigning issues for, 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 for certain groups, be it patient groups, be it kind of political groups. And you can see how, for instance, unanimity uh, can become a rallying cry for participation, but also for uh, certain political parties. Much harder, like say, than at, at, at the UN, isn't it? Because Say, for instance, take the Security Council. The Security Council, of course, is a huge stumbling block to democracy at a, at, at a global level. Um, and, um, and of course, the UN reform would have to somehow deal with the Security Council, because as long as that's there, I mean, we don't have much of a democracy there. Um, but of course, participation, I can't see how, I cannot see how participation could actually do anything there. So that probably limits what the participation can do in the absence of democratic structures, but at the European level, I can totally see how participation, because we're a step further, um, and, you know, how, how that can actually tip the balance in the right direction. Um, in, your, in your research, um, do you find these tipping points? I mean, this coming on to yours, you've been looking at, at a number of uh, international organizations to see how, um, you know, how these ideas kind of, if you like, Kind of penetrate these organizations, and well, you know, some of them are being taken on, uh, and I'm sure some of them, some of these organizations encounter serious challenges in implementing them. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, about what is happening there in the different organizations you've been looking at? And I'm particularly interested in the kind of the, both the institutional resistance that participatory initiatives encounter and the political resistance, and how you know how institutions deal with this challenge. 
I can tell you I, about the IMF because I, I really explored from the, from the inside the IMF some years ago to write a book about the governance of the IMF. And uh, for instance, there, there was a significant reform of the treaty in 2010 when uh, we moved from uh, a, a, an executive board with some members having uh, a specific uh, a special status like in the UN Security Council, the five permanent. There were also there five permanents, but these were the more exchanged uh, currencies. And uh, it moved towards an all elected board. So now every executive board director is elected by a number of states, still states, but elected, which is uh, taking off a, a privilege from, from, from some members. Of course, there is a resistance. The point is uh, when the body uh, doesn't work well anymore because of these uh, old structures, then there is a push enough for reform. And uh, in the IMF, we had a huge, uh, uh, let's say, change of balance since the 1944 to, uh, to the, the, uh, the year 2000, because we, are, we have the emerging countries which wanted to have more shares and more power because their economic power increased there along the way. And so there was a strong push towards reform. In the UN Security Council, I think that the, the Ukrainian, Ukrainian war is quite exposing the flaws of the UN Security Council. It's clear that when one of the member, members is involved, the UN Security Council is totally useless. And yeah. so maybe this will be the, at least the, the, the crisis to show us that we have to reform the, the UN Security Council. I, at least I hope so, because uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a clear evidence of its impossibility to work in certain conditions and certain conditions which are one of the five member per, permanent members directly or indirectly involved, then this happens quite often actually. So, and in this case, it, it is even the aggressor. So violating uh, uh, the, 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 the big main rule of the UN, which is the principle of non-aggression. So I think this, this could be the crisis that finally stretches the UN. I, I, I would love to, to, to see an, evol an evolution in the UN. And uh, I would love to see also an evolution in them, as you saw, as you, as you told before, I, I agree with you, we need some basic democratic structures. So at least uh, as some representative democracies should be there. And uh, I, I'm, I'm uh, strongly in favor of, uh, of an evolution of the assembly, the general assembly of the UN. Of course, we cannot imagine it like the European Parliament because there is, the distance is too big and we cannot imagine one person, one vote uh, and the same uh, member representing the same number of votes. This doesn't happen even in the European Parliament when uh, a, a, a member of the Parliament elected in Malta represents far less votes than the, the one elected in Germany because there is an, an inverse proportion to to rebalance the smaller ones with the bigger ones. Just imagine how this will be necessary when we have China and Fiji in the same, in the same body. So of course it will won't be the perfect representative democracy, but we need some kind of digital election or consultation in order to have some, let's say some representativeness, some legitimacy of the UN assembly. I mean, there's also, and I think this is often, and maybe I'm a bit 
sort of old fashioned in this sense, but um, democracy isn't just about having a say. I mean, because that is, in my view, that is in the first instance of majoritarianism. So that isn't necessarily democracy, because of course, democracy is about improving the lot of the many. So this is about, so, so I think democracy doesn't justify itself necessarily by making sure that everybody has the right amount of say in something, but it, because that may well kind of lead to discrimination and melee to all kinds of negative effects. The, 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 the purpose of democracy, of course, is far more complex than that. It's about ensuring that all kind of voices are heard, but not for the sake of hearing them, but for the sake of making sure that all are looked after and that that, that, that the lot, that the kind of the quality of life, the well-being uh, of of all people improves. And so if, you know, looking at, a, if you like, a, a measure of democracy, I think measures like inequality, uh, like health inequalities, um, economic inequalities, but also educational and other inequalities are great measures of democracy as well, because you can see that obviously certain, and it's a, in my view, almost a better measure than kind of trying to have a sense of noise, you know, who, who has had an input on what. Um, so. So in that sense, I think, and looking across Europe, what we can see, of course, is, is that for all its imperfections, it has over the last 40 years raised the quality of, you know, the, the, the quality of life and, and also the average incomes of all Europeans quite significantly. And I think there's a kind of, there, there's success and something to be cherished uh, in, in, in that. Um, so, so, but at the same time, we are facing huge problems, both, you know, in Europe, but also, globally. Uh, and, and, and I think part of your research is motivated by, by these challenges. In other words, the kind of implicit assumption being that unless we find ways of cooperating much more effectively and also more legitimately in many instances, you know, we're, we're not going to basically be able to address these problems. And so, I mean, a lot of people are looking in their kind of looking at the future at a sort of a 10-year window where a lot of stuff would have to happen. And of course, these are sort of primary demands like CO2 has to kind of come down to 1.5% and so on and so forth. But for that to happen, you know, a kind of a, a sort of decision-making processes and governance processes need to kind of hum away in the background. So I kind of, I wonder like in your own thinking, when you kind of take that sort of 10 year perspective, can you give me sort of a sense of what will need to change both in Europe and say at the key kind of like in international organizations that you are studying, what will have to change in those institutions and at the European level for us to be able to actually tackle these problems? Um, thank you, Nico. Uh, it's difficult to say everything in a, in a few minutes. So I, I'm sorry in advance for all the things I won't be able to say, but I totally agree with you when you say democracy is not just having a say. Democracy is uh, elections, but the as, as we Italians and Germans, we know perfectly that we can even elect a dictator and somewhere it happened. So it's not just elections, it's also accountability, it's also inclusiveness, and it is also responsibility, individual responsibility. We have, as you told just a minute before, we have some huge problems to address at global level, climate being just one, but inequalities are the other, but uh, there are so many the migration waves are wherever and uh, they are interconnected with climate change and with the pollution and loss of biodiversity. We have huge global problems. And, and pandemics, of course, in recent times. Pandemics. Yeah. <laughs> and we are really <laughs> experiencing that we are all interconnected in a way or another. 
And uh, really, I hope that not only institutions, global institutions, will go through some kind of restructuring because having a say at, and listening to everybody is a, a minimum standard, I think. It's not the, 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 the top we can aim at, but at least we should have consultations. It's easy to have consultations online. It's cheap. We should have lots of consultations, I think, at least with feeding politicians with information about the, the needs of the people, of the communities, the, the, the problems on the ground, because it's easy to lose track of what happens in when you have, you run a global organization, of course, you don't know every everything and everywhere, and you need to, to, to be constantly informed of the impact of your choices. And so for I, I think that participatory democracy online should be improved significantly because it's, it's the first thing. It doesn't cost almost anything. And also, I think that uh, individuals should participate and civil society should participate. But this is uh, uh, from the side of the organization. Also, uh, having uh, assemblies of citizens like the, 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 in the conference for the future could be interesting on specific topics, just to get inputs, because I think that the, 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 the political leaders have to take responsibility for their decisions. So I don't believe in direct democracy. We need somebody to address and we need responsibility of those taking decisions and who could be replaced. The other thing is we don't have a replacing mechanism at, Europe and at global level. States appoint people, states uh, uh, change people. And so we need some, some say also on, uh, on the renewal of funds. And, uh, but there is also one other side, which is the side of citizens. Citizens should be made aware that they are not so far from the organizations that they don't, don't have a meaningful say. And they should not think it's not for them because it's too far, it's too difficult. And now that we, in many, on many, uh, many organizations, we have websites informing us of the decisions, sometimes even of the processes, we should take responsibility also as citizens. We should know that we are not just citizens of our town, of our region, of our nation, but also European citizens and global citizens because our actions have impact. So especially in the environmental area, each single action has impact. So I think it's a, it's a double-faced responsibility, responsibility of the, of the uh, leaders, but also responsibility of the individuals in taking care of the planet as, as uh, they are all collectively in charge of it as global citizens. So I think this distance between individuals and organizations can be uh, shortened by better institutions or more participatory tools, but it's also a cultural approach. We need to be a, a, aware that we are part of the planet and not just a piece of it uh, <laughs> living its own way in, in, in its own way with, with its own goals. So, I think there is, I mean, I think this is, you know, uh, it's a sort of a strange paradox of our time that I think people throughout the ages probably felt quite paralyzed. I mean, I can't imagine that a, you know, sort of a, a peasant in, in the Middle Ages felt very empowered. I, I don't think they did. Um, and, and so, and, and, and of course, today, very few people do feel very empowered either. So I, in, in a way, although, but this is the paradox of our day that today, we, we, we actually have a few excuses, we could be much more active and, and much more connected. And, and uh, if, if we 
if both if we want to, but also if we know how to. And and it's 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 I think it's in in, in that combination as if you know uh, I think the ambition comes first, and then we begin to sort of figure out how we can actually uh, do this as citizens. Because of course you can't orchestrate that from the center, can you? So it has to be a kind of a quite a diffuse, a distributed kind of effort, certainly at a European level and most certainly at a global level. And there can't be a sort of a centralized coordination of, of participation. Um, so, uh, but looking at a 10 year window, if you were to pick like say a number of sort of key process, I mean, I think at a European level, unanimity is a clear thing that really kind of is a stumbling that will unlock a lot of kind of development and 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 uh, you know if, if we get beyond that um can you can you point to other kind of like sort of fundamental stumbling blocks uh, in the kind of in international organizations like say the un or the world trade organization or the world bank or any of these that you that you have studied in greater detail well there's a, a fundamental stumbling block like unanimity uh, that 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 you know would really if it was removed would kind of move these organizations and of course us a global civil society a step forward uh, are there any that you could sort of say well this then the other we really should focus on over the next 10 years if we want to make real progress well i think uh, uh, having representative bodies could be a, a huge revolution but also having independent bodies such as the european commission in europe so some uh, uh, officials uh, in charge of the interest of the organization so less diplomatic control by the main capitals over the organizations so more check and balance and more dialectic between the the organization between the bodies representing the states but also bodies representing the citizens and independent evaluations independent bodies checking on the others so we need this kind of dialectic which was very uh, effective in pushing forward europe we had this huge, huge plan, the Next Generation Europe uh, EU, which I think is quite, a, quite a progress in the in the uh, European solidarity and European uh, uh, political growth. But it was pushed by the European Commission in the end, which was independent and had the power to push for it, and what was legitimated by the European Parliament, who of course endorsed and, and uh, gave trust to the Commission once elected. But then the commission took stance and, and was proactive. And so I would like to see other the, 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 the UN Secretary General of the or the board of the World Bank being uh, independent as well, and so being proactive towards the, 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 the good policies that could be easily done, I think, with much money and, and a clear mandate. Also, having clear mandate is, is uh, some, some organization have still charters which are. 70 years old and so they cannot really address the current problems are there are there any campaigns or initiatives that you are aware of that are essentially pushing these the these campaigning points and are kind of campaigning on change on on, on, on those issues i i have participated in the Bretton woods uh, uh, civil society policy forums for some years, and I've met uh, several interesting organizations from other areas of the world. And for instance, I, I have the impression that Civicus is, uh, is an organization quite effective in, uh, in Asia and Africa. We don't see much of it in Europe, but it's quite global. So for instance, uh, empowering citizens to participate 
in the global organizations, because sometimes there are these kind of uh, fora for civil society, and there are few Europeans, or very few, even less Italians, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think one of, one of the problems that sort of ordinary models like myself sometimes have is, is that when you're not really in on the detail and you see specific things happening from a sort of a, sort of a, a distance, you know, it's like an object that moves at a glacial pace very slowly. It can almost look as if it doesn't move at all. And it's only when you have certain reference points that you actually can see that it actually has, it has moved forward. Um, one of the ideas of Reboot 2030 is, is to see whether we can actually build dialogues around these glacial processes so that over time, over the next 10 years, if you like, um, we can document, like develop those narratives and can sort of also contribute uh, to, to those processes. And um, how would you say, so if you would meet again in six or 12 months time, how would we go about making sure that we see some, I mean, how would we do this so that we're not repeating the same conversation? So I, I, I wrote several projects this year, applying for funding. So I wonder if some of them will be, will be uh, granted uh, uh, some money. But one of them is uh, uh, creating an index for democracy in international organizations, because we don't have an index. We have plenty of indexes of democracy for states, but still nobody has worked on an index on democracy of international organizations. Very, very interesting. And uh, I would be really pleased to, to, to work on this, but I need a really diverse team with uh, experts on democracy, but also experts on algorithms and statistics in order to measure these levels of democracy. So if ever I, I, I get the answer on funds for this, this specific so goal, what's the, I would love to. That sounds really exciting. So have you put in an application for this? Yes. You, you yes, have. And what's the, what's the sort of the time scale or the kind of uh, the, 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 the timeline on this? When do you expect to hear the, how this is going? Maybe at the end of summer. And uh, it was uh, a, a long-standing project, five-years project, because to build an index, you have to study a lot. And uh, you have to start from national indexes on democracy and see what is applicable to international organizations and what is different, and which are the specific features that you have to measure at, at, at the level of the, of the organization. So as I, my observations made me think that things are moving. Ah, I now have lost you. I'm sorry. Um, you're still there, but you are you are not live anymore. Um, maybe can you can you still hear me, Susanna? If you can, one thing you might be able to do is just to log in once more. Uh, do you want to try that? See whether you can come. Ah, there you come. Oh, I'm so glad it, it worked. Sorry, I lost you there for a moment. Um, so, so, um, so this sounds like a really exciting project. Um, is this is this a, like a purely research project? Or are you planning to build like a consultancy a consultancy aspect around it as well? Essentially, helping these institutions to learn from the data. I, I would love to, to establish a sort of a 
little digital assembly of civil society already working with global organizations in order to get feedback and fine tune the, the, the index with the feedback from people interacting already with, with global organizations. So that would be an honor and a pleasure to invite also you to join the project. So, so I mean, it sounds really exciting. It would, it would be a great resource, wouldn't it? But um, what, what kind of outcomes would you, what would you hope be that this a project of this kind achieves? Would I, I, well, I hope to have this kind of effect that, that sometimes national indexes of various, uh, various uh, diverse national indexes uh, obtain, which is uh, a sort of uh, uh, pride in getting up the scale or on the contrary, not being shamed by the low position. So my, my hope is as having this kind of measurements, maybe we could, we could motivate organizations in order to improve themselves. Absolutely. Now, it would be really interesting, maybe if we, uh, we obviously we'll stay in touch over the next few months. And I mean, if this if this was to come through, then this would be a very interesting project to follow, wouldn't it? And we would sort of meet once every six months and you could give us sort of a, a feedback on how, how this develops. And, and, and obviously also on the discussions you have with the uh, international organizations, the management um, and, and the various uh, partners to see to see because of course this would be a collaborative project wouldn't it in a sense that you wouldn't be you wouldn't you wouldn't turn up like a policewoman but you would be turning up as somebody who wants to work with them and also improve uh, uh, the democracy in the organization uh, I think that's that's really shall we shall we kind of like broadly sort of like um, think about that to, to, to see whether we can build a dialogue around 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 that project that would be wonderful yeah yeah okay so let's let, let's do that Susanna for now thank you very very much it's been really really interesting talking to you um and um I will if you have any any links uh, that you would like or other information that you would like people to to see uh, please send me the links I will then put them under the under the video so that people watch the video can also go and go to various sites maybe there's more information about your research uh, more information about certain aspects of the kind of organizations you refer to in our talk. So whatever information you have as background or uh, whatever, uh, send it to me and I'll kind of add it, add it to the video. With pleasure. Thank Susanna, you for thank having you. me. <laughs> thank <laughs> you very much for joining me today. My pleasure. And All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. See you. See ya.